In three, two, one. Seven things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Jamie Easton. This is the Sunday Seven. In today's episode, we're talking about cockroach robots, trippy medical treatments, and we find out about the special relationship between wealth and health. But first, it was on this day in 1892 that the first human test of a vaccine against cholera was carried out. Ukrainian bacteriologist Valdemir Hufkin risked his life by testing it on himself. And 129 years later, as you'll hear in today's episode, we're still discovering medicine in new and interesting ways. Imagine this. It's late, you've just arrived at a dingy hotel after a last-minute booking, and you're just about to enter your room for the first time. You open the door to your room, switch on the light, and you hear... Cockroaches. With their ability to scurry up walls at the speed of light and walk upside down on ceilings, they're often the stuff of nightmares, well certainly mine. But over at University of California, Berkeley, a group of engineers are taking these key characteristics and creating tiny insect-scale robots. But hang on a sec, why do we even want cockroach robots in the first place? That sounds like a dreadful idea. One interesting example is actually the collapse of the Florida condo happening recently. I think the rescuer has trouble identifying uh, the survivor. So if you think about if I have an artificial uh, cockroach that will sneak through the holes into the, the rubbles and try to identify and find the survivor, that could be potentially usage. That's Professor Liwei Lin, part of the team at UC Berkeley that's created the robots. In the original designs, they're a bit unwieldy, and a lot of the time it would move randomly. But in their most recent study, they've come closer to perfecting the movements. We actually have two electrostatic food paths. That's our control system. So whenever you apply the voltage on the, say, left foot, the electrostatic force be- between the left foot pad and the ground would actually fix the left foot at that particular spot. And because the robot is moving and this force the robot to make a left turn, and the same thing would apply if I applied uh, electrostatic voltage on the right foot, it would make a right turn. While the team demonstrated most of the robot skills whilst it was powered and controlled through a small electrical wire, they also created a battery-operated one that can last for up to 19 minutes and 31 metres. Considering the potential applications like search and rescue or investigating other hazardous situations, maybe cockroaches, I don't know, aren't so bad after all. Our robot is actually very, very friendly. It's soft and you can step on it and it can still be functional. So there's nothing to be afraid of. Now something that's close to my heart. No matter how many boxes of Swarshkoff or Just For Men you buy, greying is an inevitable part of getting older. Or is it? According to a new study, there might be other factors at play, and perhaps you've noticed. Take Tony Blair or Barack Obama. If you compare images from their first days in office to their last, it appears that their demanding and high-stress jobs have taken a toll on their once dark and luscious locks. Now, this might seem obvious, but researchers from Columbia University are the first to offer quantitative evidence linking psychological stress to greying hair in people. And their study has produced some surprising results. 
what we found was that hair graying in humans is reversible and that the reversibility of hair graying is associated with stress or the removal of psychological stress. And what this shows is that the human aging process, which we tend to think of as a very linear and predetermined process, is actually flexible. This is Dr. Martin Picard, the study's senior author. What we found in our study is that there are some individuals who have experienced stress and during stressful periods have some hairs that actually turned from dark to white. And then when the stress goes away, the white hair can revert back to its dark state. I'm no spring chicken and I've certainly got my fair share of grey hair. If I stress less, does that mean my youthful plumage returns? Well, that's a good question. I don't think it's that simple. Uh, And stressing less, you know, is easier said than done. You know, there are certainly things we can do to uh, reduce our stress levels. Uh, like, you know, choosing to hang out with uh, people we feel good uh, with, uh, deciding to engage in activities that make us feel inspired, uh, moving, doing physical activity, not eating too much. These are things that we know can positively influence our biology and can positively influence the aging process. So, doctor, will you be adding an extra holiday to your beauty regime? (laughs) I think one conclusion from this is that uh, possibly taking time off or at least finding ways to feel better is very likely to have an impact on our biology. First time in 400 years, a baby beaver's been born on Exmoor. In a clip that went viral this week, you can see a six-week-old beaver, also known as a kit, taking a playful dip with its mum. Centuries ago, this would have been a common sight in the British countryside, but it's one that's been missing after beavers were hunted almost into extinction in the 16th century. Last January, two Eurasian beavers were released on the National Trust's estate, and soon enough, two became three. So who is Mama Beaver? National Trust project manager Ben Eardley explains. She didn't have the easiest of starts. She was orphaned when she was very young and, and, and she wasn't given much chance of surviving. It was in the middle of winter. But she's come through. She's doing really well now. Uh, she's partnered up with Yogi. Um, they're a nice family pair. They're monogamous, so they'll be together now for, for good. Um, and, and in their first season together, they've had, they've had the young kits. So, um, so yeah, it's a really positive story and really nice to see. And a, it's, a, it, it's a great thing for the National Trust as well and our, our land, outdoors and nature strategy. Beavers are ecosystem engineers and similar schemes elsewhere in Britain and Europe have shown how their activities can improve both water quality and biodiversity. So what changes have we seen with the reintroduction of beavers on Exmoor? To put it in its simplest terms, they just bring water and light back into the landscape. So they like deeper water, so they dam and pond, they create that deep water, that wetland habitat is amazing for the wildlife. And in their browsing, the way that they feed, they open up the woodland, so that creates new growth and again, opportunities for other wildlife. And there's also benefits for us in that holding that water in the landscape helps to mitigate um, uh, the effects of extreme weather. So so they're, they're an amazing animal, they're a, they're, they're a super important sort of keystone species. That is incredible. We can't wait to see more little ones beavering around. You 
might know it as that hippie drug from the 60s, but psilocybin, the psychedelic compound that puts the magic in mushrooms, is having a revival as a potential treatment for depression and other mental illnesses. Over at Yale, for the first time in living animals, scientists have now observed that the psychedelic compound can actually remodel parts of the brain, giving them a new key that could help explain the drug's reported antidepressant effects. Hi, I'm Alex Kwan, an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Yale University. For humans, psilocybin is a classical psychedelic that can alter perception and mood. Uh, And the compound has also recently been shown to be a promising agent for treating depression. So there have been studies previously investigating how psychedelics can improve treatment-resistant depression. How does this study differ? You know, these studies in human, those methods are more coarse. We can see a brain region, but each of the region would have millions of cells. Here, by studying mice and then using a laser scanning microscope in my lab, we're literally seeing single connections among individual brain cells. What we found is that when we give a mouse a single dose of psilocybin, we see an increase in the number of neuronal connections, in fact, about a 10% increase. And then that, this increase persists, and we can still see these changes about a month later in the mouse's brain. So what does this new research mean for medicine and treatments for depression? Our study has some implications for medicine and the treatment for depression. There has been a lot of evidence suggesting that depression is associated with a loss of neuronal connection in the brain, uh, particularly in an area called the frontal cortex, which is a brain region that's very important for mood and cognition. So here in mice, we show that psilocybin can increase the number of neuronal connections. This raises the possibility that perhaps uh, these drugs have the capacity to restore neural connections that uh, once have been lost. Well, this sounds really promising. But is this just the start? We have more studies going on. Uh, We right now have projects in the lab trying to understand how psilocybin might affect different behaviors uh, in the mice. So we hope the research will lead to a better understanding of the psilocybin as well as trying to um, be able to help in terms of finding new drugs for treating depression and other mental illnesses. Despite the latest announcements for the lifting of restrictions, masks will most likely stick around for a little longer. They've been a daily part of our lives for well over a year now, but it's fair to say they've caused a few communication issues. Not being able to hear people properly, see their whole face, or even forgetting the other person can't see your expressions all contribute to the problem. Although it makes it a bit easier to mouth the subtle F off to idiots though, doesn't it? Luckily, a new transparent face mask is being launched. Invented by world-leading speech and language therapy team at Alder Hay Children's Hospital in Liverpool, they've partnered with Blue Tree Medical to bring their vision to life. Let's hear from Blue Tree's MD, John Constantine-Smith, to hear more. So, John, what does the research tell us? So, overall, the research tells us that people are going to continue wearing masks after the 19th of July. In terms of the application of our brilliancy mask, It confirmed our initial thoughts about how revolutionary this could be to healthcare professionals and patients. With 46% of UK adults sometimes are always lip-reading when communicating with another person, and 60% of people missing seeing facial reactions, that really does broaden the scope of users and applications for this mask. And why did the speech and language therapy team feel a need to create a mask like this? It became evident very quickly once the government started talking about making masks compulsory, that providing speech therapy to young children with masks will be very difficult and that a solution must be available. When the team at Aldehe realised that there were no transparent masks available, they connected with the innovation team who took it on as a project. It soon became clear that not being able to see people's faces when they were speaking 
was likely to be a problem for many more than just those in speech therapy. Tell me a little bit more about the benefits. So one of the key features of the brilliancy mask is clarity. And the way it's been designed, you can see the entire face, uh, which is vital for speech and language therapy. The brilliancy mask also has an anti-fog coating, which prevents it from misting when you're wearing it. Secondly, from a, a safety perspective, it is going to be certified to type to our standards, which is the requirements for a medical grade mask, and therefore will be as safe as any other type to our mask that's available. And then finally, um, the last kind of major benefit is, is comfort. It attaches under the ears at the back of the neck, which is more comfortable, but also avoids clashing critically with hearing aids. Amazing. I want one. Where can I go to find out more, please? So if you'd like to find out more, get in touch directly with us at uh, Blue Tree Group or Alder Hay Children's Hospital, and they should be available to buy from Blue Tree in the upcoming months. some aspirin for a headache or your doctor prescribes you a course of antibiotics, do you ever stop to think where these medicines actually come from? Most drugs we use today come from nature. Aspirin, for example, was first isolated from the willow tree and penicillin was discovered from common bread mould. To date, the majority of drugs we commonly use are derived from natural sources found on land. However, as demand grows for new medicines, researchers are increasingly looking towards the ocean. If you know somebody that's had leukemia or lymphoma in the last 40 years, they most likely have been treated with a drug that was derived from a sponge that lives on coral reefs. Coral reefs are used for Alzheimer's drugs, HIV drugs, and now there's a lot of buzz around some COVID treatments. Dr. Stephanie Ware is a marine ecologist and global spokesperson at the Nature Conservancy, the world's leading conservation organisation. And as she explains, coral reefs could be the key to solving the next medical mystery. So the reason why they're a really important source of medicine is because of the nature of coral reefs. What is really unique and important about this is you've got these organisms, just like trees, that are stuck. They can't go anywhere, right? So you've got corals, sponges, anemones. These are animals that don't move around. And because they can't move around, they have to use other defenses. They have to use chemistry to protect themselves, to attract a mate, to signal, and basically to communicate. Scientists isolate these unique compounds that allow coral-based creatures to communicate and have used them to treat a huge range of infections and illnesses. We would go out collecting. We would just collect small amounts of sponges and small amounts of these other little slimy animals. We would collect them and we would test them for antiviral properties and anti-cancer properties. And anything that looked promising would get taken and further developed. This does sound like amazing news for the advancement of medicine, but with 75% of coral reefs already threatened, a number that could rise to 90% by 2050, our next medical treatments could be at risk. The biggest threats to the ocean are... Um, climate change, pollution, and overfishing. The ocean can't sustain either of these. The human communities that depend on them also can. We need to take better care of our ocean and to raise awareness, Stephanie and the Nature Conservancy have launched the Ocean Sewage Alliance, a new initiative to deter water pollution. Our waste is really valuable. You can turn it into biofuel, fertilizer, irrigation water, even drinking water. 
We're really focusing on improving treatment. We already know how to treat. So we're improving it on using nature, nature-based solutions, and also using it as a resource. They say that money can't buy your happiness, but what about health? In a new multidisciplinary study, researchers from Brigham and Women's Hospital have shown that health and wealth are intimately tied. In their results, negative wealth mobility is associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular events, while positive wealth shows the opposite. We spoke to one of the study's authors to find out a bit more. I'm uh, Sarah Matalo. I'm a health economist at the Department of Health Policy at the London School of Economics. We analyze the relationship between wealth, mobility, and health. So to do that, we get U.S. data from the Health and Retirement Survey, uh, which repeatedly asks people about their health and their wealth. And uh, what we do is to assess whether getting wealthier between ages 50 and 65 is linked to their future cardiovascular health between ages 65 and 85. So it's about relative wealth mobility, which is very different from income. Um, for example, income is what you receive at the end of the month, each month, for example, right? And it's a flow. Whereas wealth is what we call a stock. It's what you have accumulated, either positive, your assets, or negative, your debts. What we find is that positive wealth mobility is associated with better long-term health, uh, heart health in particular. Uh, what that means is uh, if you got relatively richer compared to your peers, then your hazard, your likelihood of suffering a cardiovascular event, which can be any form of heart problems really, uh, is lower. So you're better off. Um, we don't find as strong an effect if, you're, if you go down, right? If you get relatively less wealthy. Um, so it seems to be the case that it's better that the effect of getting richer is the stronger effect. So it goes, that kind of goes against the saying of money doesn't buy you happiness. It might not buy you happiness, but it seems to be able to buy you a better, better heart. <laughs> it's true. Um, I did find many potential channels for that. Uh, either decreased stress or changes on how you spend your time. Um, there are many potential ways, but it does seem to be the case that wealth is health. From the study then, what are your recommendations? The first is that wealth matters. Uh, and so policy related, for example, to debts will likely have long-term consequences, and it's worth considering that when designing such policies, right? And the second would be that uh, we do need to look beyond income. Um, it's very tempted to, tempting to focus on income and the effects of income. It's easier to measure. Uh, it's more, it fluctuates more. There's more variation. Uh, but the truth is wealth uh, may have deeper effects that we've been basically ignoring uh, up until this point. What can you recommend to our listeners? Do they need to get rid of their debt rather than working towards earning more each year? I would say that it's important that it um, highlights the role of savings, for example, and of being careful about how much that you incur in, uh, because that may give you uh, a lot of headaches later on in life, and it may have potentially devastating effects on your health. This has been The Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Produced and published by Daft Doris.